The following program is brought to you by Caltech. Well, it's a great pleasure to introduce our next speaker, who is uh, Graeme Feingold from Noah Israel, as it says there. Graeme's uh, kind of the world expert on cloud aerosol interactions, so we're going to get the real story about cloud brightening and CCN, um, or maybe the more complicated story about cloud brightening and CCN. Um, so it's a great pleasure, Graeme. I'm very glad you could come. Thanks very much, Graham. Um, just um, so, just pl please pay attention. Uh, the spelling over here is G R A H A M, so there's no relation between us at all. Um, I'm going to be talking about uh, aerosol cloud precipitation interactions in warm clouds. I'm going to give you a little bit of a taste of our knowledge of these processes. Um, I'm going to try to tap into remote sensing some of the cloud modeling that we've been doing over the years, fine-scale cloud modeling. Um, I'll talk a little about uh, geoengineering, but really only obliquely, and we'll pick up on that on Wednesday. Uh, just quick uh, acknowledgments. Uh, thank you very much to um, the Keck Institute. And I'd also like to acknowledge up front a number of individuals, former group members and colleagues who uh, have contributed a lot to the work I'll be showing. Their names will be peppered throughout the talk. I'm not really going to uh, talk, I'm, I won't refer too much to them, but uh, this really is uh, work on, on the part of a, a lot of individuals. Okay, so, you know, obviously the, it's really easy to motivate aerosol cloud interactions with images of ship tracks. Uh, this is a NASA image. Uh, showing ship tracks, and I think you all know what ship tracks are. Cloud condensation nuclei have brightened these clouds. Uh, this is in the near IR. And these are usually the poster child for aerosol cloud interactions. It's easy to motivate why we might want to look at aerosol cloud interactions. Look at these dark oceans over here. Look at the bright clouds. And then the fact that when we have these ship tracks, we're changing the albedo, the planetary albedo, significantly. We, don't, we also don't have any compensating effects in the long wave. So this is the example of why we need to understand aerosol cloud interactions. I'd also like to bring in uh, perhaps the alter ego of ship tracks. And these are these rifts or open cells that sometimes have a linear structure. They don't always. Uh, sometimes they come more in the form of pockets of open cells. And these are regions that we now know are associated with precipitation. So ship tracks would be regions of high aerosol concentrations and no precipitation. And now we're starting to understand a lot more about these dark linear features that actually, uh, to some extent at least, are aerosol related. And I, I will bring that in as we go along. So these are my sort of motivational slides. They bracket aerosol cloud interactions and non-precipitating clouds. And then they start talking and addressing the issue of precipitating clouds. Just a brief outline over here, and this is a sort of very high-level outline. I'm going to talk about simple constructs that I think you've all heard about, the albedo effect, the lifetime effect, the nth in and indirect effect. And I'm going to make the claim that they may have outlived their usefulness. And by the end of the talk, hopefully you will agree with me, or we can have an interesting discussion about that. Vis-a-vis um, -vis these indirect effects, I'm going to talk about anticipated and unanticipated responses. I'll bring in some issues of correlation 
versus causality, and this often comes up in satellite remote sensing. I think we have to spend a little time talking about that. And then at some point in the talk, I'd like to get into self-organizing systems uh, by stability of these systems and the possible role of aerosol. So I'm really trying to move away from just talking about the first indirect effect, the second indirect effect. I still think we've got to consider the physics behind those effects, but I'm trying to break away from that, uh, what I call the simple constructs. And finally, I'll give one example of a numerical ship track experiment. This is a, a, a numerical experiment uh, rather than a real experiment, and, and we'll pick up on that on Wednesday uh, when we address that in much more detail. I'll just start with a few simple cloud physics ideas. Uh, the first, clouds are dynamical entities, and the characteristics of the cloud field depend on the meteorological regime. Too often when we talk about aerosol-cloud interactions, we start talking from the perspective of aerosol particles. I want to bring cloud fields front and center. These are first and foremost what we're dealing with when we're looking at that albedo and the reflectance. We, to first order, need to know cloud fraction, cloud depth, liquid water path. These are the parameters that primarily dictate liquid water path. Excuse me, albedo. The second uh, simple physical uh, concept is that more aerosol generates more drops. Almost always, I'll give some counterexamples, but for the most part, if you throw more aerosol particles into a cloud, you will have more drops. The drop size, on the other hand, the response of the drop size is unpredictable, and we'll get into reasons why. Just as an example, this is a compilation from Ramanathan showing drop concentration on the y-axis, aerosol concentration on the x-axis, many different field experiments showing in all of them that as you increase the aerosol concentration, you get higher drop concentrations. The only question over here is perhaps to what extent do you increase the aerosol, the drop concentration in response to a change in the aerosol. So if you look at a power law, which is usually used to describe this, the question then becomes, is alpha 0.5 or is it 0.7 or perhaps uh, closer to unity? So it's a question of degree. I don't think, for the most part, we, we accept that more aerosol yields more drops. And perhaps the only other piece of simple cloud physics I'm going to address is this question of collision coalescence. Uh, smaller drops are less likely to collide and coalesce. We need drops of about 20 micron radius to initiate the process. So collision efficiency on the y-axis, the collected drop radius over here, these are the collector drops, uh, these large drops over here. It's only when you get up to about, to about 20 micron radius that you start getting uh, significant collision efficiencies. Otherwise, essentially, these small drops move in the flow lines around the drop and nothing happens, at least from the point of view of coalescence. This is basic cloud physics that I'm sure many of you are well familiar with, but I just lay some of these ideas out. Uh, here's an example of the importance of larger drops for collision coalescence. If you start with a clean case with input conditions that are clean, 50 particles per centimeter cubed, you can see how this initial size distribution rapidly transforms into a bimodal distribution. Here are the large drops that have formed through collision coalescence. I've demarcated here in red the 20 micron radius, so if you like these all the drizzle drops. Uh, and here, when we have 300 particles per cc input, uh, we have very few drizzle drops forming. So that's 
the basic physics. Why is this problem so difficult? Well, the spatial temporal scales to begin with. Uh, this problem involves complexity in both aerosol and clouds at a range of spatial scales. We've got aerosol particles that range in sizes from a few, uh, few nanometers, actually, when they're newly formed, to thousands of nanometers. Cloud drops and ice particles from micron sizes all the way up to centimeters. Uh, we're dealing with cloud scales down to perhaps 10 meters, all the way up to 1,000 kilometers when we're looking at cloud systems. And we've got a whole range of temporal scales. So droplet activation processes, the formation of a droplet from, on an aerosol particle on a cloud condensation nucleus would be a very rapid process. Temporal scales for precipitation, about 20 minutes. Uh, cloud systems, days. We've got a huge range of temporal and spatial scales over here. And when we get into these coupled systems, we've got many scale interactions. These diagrams here are really just to point to the huge range of uh, spatial scales we're dealing with, 10-kilometer type scale over here, showing you some small cumulus clouds, uh, mesoscale features over here, uh, synoptics, and then the, the, the whole, the, uh, the, obviously, the uh, planetary scale. Um, I thought this was a, this is a nice example from, uh, I think, originally from Rogers and Yao or Rogers, just showing you the range of scales when it comes to droplets. A small cloud droplet of a, about a micron is 10 orders of magnitude smaller than a raindrop in terms of mass. So you've got this really amazingly efficient process of converting small cloud droplets to raindrops within perhaps 20 minutes. And all of this we have to try to understand and encapsulate in, uh, it's hard enough doing it in small scale models, but when we try to do that in climate models, as you well know, it's particularly difficult. Some pitfalls. I said I'd speak for a few minutes on correlation versus uh, causation. Uh, here is an example of some satellite remote sensing. And I didn't mean to pick at all on, on uh, uh, Francois-Marie Brion. This is work published in, in Science uh, in 2002 showing drop radius as a function of the aerosol index. Aerosol index, just think of it as the, the amount of aerosol. I don't want to go into too much detail, but they generated uh, plots, drop radius versus aerosol index, and you can see in general the drop radius decreases with increasing aerosol amount. Uh, the slope of these is rather weak, but that's another story. The question then becomes, is this a causal relationship or is this just a correlation between drop radius and, and, and amount of aerosol? And as an example, I like to bring in the, the, the observed correlation between shark attacks and ice cream sales, which is clearly a false correlation, but it, it's a real one. And, of course, it's the meteorology. When the sun comes out, uh, people go to the beaches. And, um, okay. So uh, increasingly, in recent years, model reanalysis is being used to separate aerosol from meteorological influences. So uh, I'll show some examples in a bit of how you could start teasing apart relationships like this with some uh, reanalysis uh, so that you can get a, a, a more confidence that you really are seeing an aerosol effect rather than um, meteorology. Remote sensing of aerosol cloud interactions is really, really hard. Uh, you're dealing with, this is, just, this is a scene from a famous image you've probably seen from the International Space Station. There's a huge cumulonimbus anvil over here. I've just concentrated on this part of the picture. Look at the scene here of, of cumulus clouds of different sizes, all embedded in a rather dirty air mass. Uh, 
at least it appears that way. How do you determine what's cloud and what's aerosol? How do you pick apart where you can make a, a good aerosol measurement and talk about that aerosol affecting this cloud? So that's partly the adjacency issue because you're not really looking in a column of air. And then secondly, you've got cloud contamination, meaning when you try to make an aerosol measurement, you're actually picking up some uh, cloud and small elements of clouds. And this, these could be really small features that, that, that are contaminating your aerosol measurements. So that's very difficult. And then there are all the 3D effects, photons bouncing uh, between the clouds, uh, brightening the aerosol between the clouds that make it harder to evaluate uh, aerosol effects in clouds as well. Uh, of course, we have to look at the pitfalls when it comes to models. Models are imperfect. The range of scales is a huge challenge, the one what I pointed out before. And so I'd like to look at models as being wrong, to quote George Box, but hopefully useful, particularly in teasing out some of the causality. Okay, what, cl what controls cloud albedo? Well, just take, take a simple relationship uh, of optical depth. This would be for a plane parallel cloud. The cloud optical depth scales as the drop number to, about, to, to the power one-third times the liquid water path. I'm going to be using this acronym quite a bit, liquid water path to the five-sixths. Uh, for, for, for low optical depths, the albedo scales with optical depth. So we're looking here at cloud optical depth being two and a half times more sensitive to changes in liquid water path than changes in drop number. So five-sixths divided by a third, a factor of two and a half over there. To first order, we really need to get the liquid water path right. Is there a cloud there or isn't there? Uh, is there a dark underlying surface or is there a cloud there? Is to first order what we really have to get at. So liquid water path has a much stronger control on the optical depth than the drop number. That isn't to say we should be ignoring the drop number, but just I just wanted to bring that perspective in. Uh, a very useful metric has been the concept of albedo susceptibility proposed by Toomey, I believe, in 1990, and a very nice paper by Platnik and Toomey in 1994. And the ship tracks are a great example of that. Only certain clouds, well, one should look for the, the clouds that are most susceptible. In other words, which clouds are most sensitive to increases in the drop number, sensitive vis-a-vis -vis albedo. And it's the clouds that have an albedo of about 0.5. It's the thin clouds, not the thick clouds. That's where we should be looking for albedo effects. The equation for the uh, albedo susceptibility, DADN, the change in albedo with a change in drop number, at constant liquid water path, and you could add a string of other parameters there, constant depth, et cetera. The analytical solution to that is the albedo times 1 minus the albedo. There's your uh, parabolic shape over there divided by three times the drop concentration. We can quibble about the value of three, but in essence, that is the relationship. In logarithmic terms, you'd essentially have this equal to one minus A over three. So d log A, d log N would be one minus A over three. Clouds with the lowest albedo are going to have the highest albedo susceptibility. Well, you can expand that little, oh, uh, I wanted to point out that the drop number concentration is here in the uh, denominator. Remember that I'm ignoring for a moment the relationship between drop concentration and aerosol concentration, which goes as Na to the power alpha. Um, so to the extent that alpha is very different from one, we could be dealing with issues there. Uh, but I just want to sort of keep this on a simple level. When I talk about drop concentration, I'm making the assumption that there's a direct link between aerosol concentration, or at least a monotonic relationship between aerosol concentration and drop concentration.
Well, if we expand this kind of expression further and we relax this, the assumption of, of constant liquid water path, I've done that here in, in the logarithmic form, so d log a, d log n, you now find a term that relates to the, the change in liquid water path with the change in drop number. So that's the liquid water path response. And the next term over here that is related to the breadth response. Here we're talking about the breadth of the size distribution of the drops. K is inversely proportional to the breadth. Um, I won't go into details. I'll give you an example of that in a second. I'll talk briefly about this breadth response and then we'll jump into much more detail into the liquid water path response. So if we were to take clouds with constant liquid water path, as I have here in a, in a numerical modeling study, and we were to look at the scaling of the optical depth as a function of the drop number, we should expect all these points to fall on a one-to-one -one line if optical depth indeed scales with n to the one-third. But immediately we see that there's a great deal of scatter. And it's only when we start introducing that breadth parameter k, one over the, the k is one over the breadth, then we start seeing things line up uh, more tightly. Uh, these happen to be some numerical experiments for non-precipitating clouds. Uh, you could do this for precipitating clouds. We have done that, in fact. Um, it, what's interesting about this is that for non-precipitating clouds, these breadth effects actually reduce the albedo susceptibility. And when you get into the precipitating clouds, these effects enhance the albedo susceptibility. So just sort of hinting at the kind of complexity that we need to deal with. So if I flip back there for one second, the sign of this changes depending on whether we are looking at uh, precipitating or non-precipitating clouds. I could talk more in more detail to this, but I'd like to sort of keep to the main point uh, right now. All right, let's get to the liquid water path response. Uh, so now we're focusing on this contribution to susceptibility from changes in liquid water path with changes in drop number. Uh, this is work from Hahn et al. Uh, he was at GIS at the time. This is ISCIP data, uh, looking at a PDF of a parameter called beta, where beta is essentially the change in liquid water path with drop concentration. The details of how they did that I won't go into, but this sort of gives you a flavor of what's going on. In his abstract, I think he claims that about one-third of the time you have positive values, about one-third of the time you're around zero response, and one-third of the time negative response. So we don't really have a good handle, at least uh, from this study, as to the sign of the change of liquid water path with increasing drop number. Uh, here are some ship tracks from Jim Coakley, uh, 2002. Uh, the ship tracks that I showed you earlier would tend to have smaller drops. Uh, so you've got this effluent coming out of the ship stack going into the clouds. The drop size, the effective radius should be smaller. Here is your ship track, the histogram of the effective radii in solid line. You can see that the histogram is shifted to smaller sizes than the control, control being the dashed line over here. So smaller drops in the ship track. We expected that. But when you look at the optical depth, you find that the histograms are not very different. Well, how, how, is, how could that be true? Uh, because we would have expected the optical depth to go up if all else were equal. Well, all else is not equal, and apparently the liquid water path is decreasing. They didn't show direct measurements of liquid water path, but when you look at a histogram of d tau, d effective radius, uh, which should have a value of minus 1 
if liquid water, water path were constant, you can see that on this side of the, the, that, this red line, it implies reduced liquid water path. On the right side of this line, increased liquid water path. So it seems that the ship tracks that they looked at tended to have reduced liquid water path. Another example here, and I bring this up because Matsui et al. started to bring in NSEP reanalysis to their studies to try to give the meteorological uh, context for these correlations. Uh, the effective radius over here uh, is plotted against aerosol index. And in all these plots, on the other axis, you're looking at a stability parameter, the lower tropospheric stability. So the effective radius, as expected, is decreasing with increasing aerosol. The arrow is indicating the increase. So that's expected. But what perhaps wasn't expected from classical second indirect effect would be a decrease in the liquid water path with increasing aerosol. And when you look at the albedo then, you're now finding that the albedo is approximately constant. So we've got these competing and compensating effects. We don't really see any brightening over here, at least for the data that they showed. And then the other thing they're showing is the sensitivity to this stability parameter. And these effects change, as you can see here, with the stability parameter. And I'll show some clearer examples in a minute. Uh, it'll just be a little easier to show them. So here's work from Matt Lebsack. Uh, from uh, Graham's group at, uh, at CSU, and I believe he'll be here soon, looking at the albedo. So alpha here is the albedo and the effective radius as a function of the liquid water path. Uh, if you want to focus on clean versus dirty, in other words, low aerosol, high aerosol, focus on any pair, gray or black. Uh, so, uh, the solid is clean, the dashed is dirty. So at a given liquid water path, you can see now that the dirty conditions will have smaller drop radii. That is a, a true Toomey experiment. You're now isolating things in terms of the liquid water path, and you're showing that the more aerosol you have, the smaller the effective radius is. And if you look at the albedo, the more aerosol you have, well, let's move out here. It's a little easier. The more aerosol you have, the brighter the cloud will be at constant liquid water path. That isn't to say that Toomey or any, anybody is suggesting that liquid water path remains constant. It's just trying to isolate the, the albedo effect from the possible feedbacks. And I should point out, too, that by looking at unstable versus stable conditions, uh, they were again trying to uh, get at the uh, meteorological context for these observations. Well, what does, uh, uh, what does modeling tell us? And in this case, I'm going to look at large eddy simulations, so fine-scale models, grids on the order of 50 meters in the horizontal, vertical grids about 5 meters, domains very small, perhaps only about 4 kilometers in this case. I forget the details. Um, this is work we did back in 2003, showing a range of simulations from clean conditions, uh, that's the solid black line, to more and more polluted conditions. So as the line becomes more broken, you're getting to more and more polluted conditions. The triangular shape you're seeing over here is the fairly classical adiabatic liquid water uh, content that you see in stratocumulus. So here's the liquid water content on this axis, and these are showing the cloud fraction. Well, what immediately becomes apparent in these simulations is that with increasing aerosol, you're actually getting lower liquid water contents and lower liquid water parts. That was somewhat unexpected. And the cloud fractions, even though the cloud fraction is remaining at 
you can see that the depth of this cloud, the base is eroding uh, fairly rapidly. The, the tops are elevated a little bit, but not to the same extent that the bases are uh, rising. Uh, that's not what I wanted to do. And more evidence of that comes from work by Andy Ackerman and, and Brian Toon uh, showing liquid water path responses to changes in drop concentration, also from large eddy simulation, pointing to the importance of the humidity of the air above the stratocumulus clouds. This could determine whether your change in liquid water path is greater than zero or less than zero. So here are some examples. Aztecs happen to be a relatively moist case above the inversion. Increasing aerosol increases the liquid water path. The same was true to some extent in fire to a point. Uh, but in the dry cases, increasing uh, the aerosol concentration proxied by the droplet concentration would give you a decrease in the liquid water path. So increases followed by decreases. The precipitation in all cases uh, decreases with increasing aerosol. Uh, I don't think that, that that's something that for the most part we are quite solid on. Another point I wanted to raise here for those who think that by going to large eddy simulations you've solved all your issues, here are two simulations of the same case, a fire case from 1987, a non-precipitating stratocumulus. This is a fine resolution simulation over here, 20 meters by 10 uh, liquid water path. Um, and this is a coarse resolution simulation. Well, that's 40 by 20. I wouldn't necessarily call that coarse. But you can see immediately that let's just take, let's compare like curves over here, solid black curve over here reaching up to 90 grams per meter squared, and over here only to about 80. So we essentially, we're over in training over here and diluting this cloud. So even at this small scale of modeling, we're having a hard time quantifying responses. Uh, the other thing that's important here is these were the, the solid lines of the clean simulations, the dashed lines or the dotted lines are the polluted simulations. And again, we're seeing a reduction in the, in the liquid water path in response to an increase in aerosol. And some of you may already be thinking forward to potential impacts on geoengineering. Um, if anyone cares, if you start getting into details like the, how does mixing occur, homogeneously or inhomogeneously, that's the difference between the gray lines and the black lines. And I think it's fair to say, for the most part, those are somewhat uh, small and not worth quibbling about at this point. Um, I'll spend a little bit of time now on cumulus clouds. They may not be targets uh, for geoengineering, but I think they show some really interesting results. I'll, I'll just show a few slides on that. So here are some cumulus clouds from a field experiment that we did in, in Houston a few years ago, uh, continental cumulus clouds. I just use this because th these were model simulations from, from a large eddy simulation just to give you a visual of the kinds of cloud fields we can reproduce and that they do uh, look somewhat realistic. Uh, in this case, we have much larger variations in cloud depth as opposed to the stratocumulus. We've got a whole range of cloud sizes and cloud depths. They do obey certain rules, so that's helpful. But this is um, much more complex a scene than the solid stratocumulus cloud. There is significant entrainment in these clouds. The liquid water contents are subadiabatic, significantly so. Uh, this is work by uh, Lou et al. Uh, Julius here at Caltech. Um, and you can see that as you uh, go up in height above cloud base, your adiabatic ratio, so one would be 
adiabatic liquid water content. As you go up in height, that reduces significantly. Um, they also are very common in the trade cumulus regime. So this just happens to be a, a, cumulus, um, a continental cumulus. Okay, so how, if, let's just look at some time series of a clean case versus a polluted case. And these might be somewhat extreme, but I think they show the differences fairly well. If we look at the cloud fraction, the polluted case over the course of these six hours has lower cloud fractions. If we look at the cloud average liquid water parts, so if we just take an average over the cloudy regions, we can see that the polluted clouds seem to have a slightly higher liquid water path. But because the cloud fraction is going down, I don't have the plot, but I can tell you that the liquid water path over this entire scene is decreasing because it's driven by the cloud fraction. So here again, we're seeing ambiguity in the liquid water path response. On, on a cloud-by-cloud -cloud basis, DLWPDN is actually positive, but for the entire scene, it's negative because of the cloud fraction response. Another interesting aspect that came out over here was the fact that the TKE in the polluted clouds happened to be higher, and I'll, I'll talk a little about that. In all cases, the precip is suppressed. So here's your clean case with a time series of the precipitation, and there's no sign here on this linear scale of any precip from the polluted case. And that is an extremely polluted case. But we don't seem to see ambiguity in the, in the drizzle response to increases in aerosol. Well, let's just use this as a talking point. This is a schematic from a paper by Zhao and Austin in 2005. This is LES output. But let's look at this cumulus cloud, which is characterized by a positively buoyant core and this negative buoyancy on either side of this positive core. And what I found interesting uh, for the discussion of aerosol effects on cumulus clouds is the vorticity equation. And here it is in two-dimensional form. There is the advective term over here, but here is a term that's associated with the horizontal buoyancy gradient across this cloud. So if we were to take a constant altitude and draw a horizontal line across that cloud, uh, we would be looking, B being buoyancy, we'd be looking at the horizontal buoyancy gradient. And the horizontal buoyancy gradient is feeding into the vorticity equation. So let me just back up for one second. Any changes in the horizontal buoyancy gradient that might come from aerosol effects could potentially change the vorticity and the dynamics of those clouds. Well, here is some analysis of the model output. I'm looking here just at downdraft regions. Let's look at the turbulent flux here on this side, a profile. This is a domain average profile. Solid line is the clean simulation. The dotted is the polluted. You can see this very distinct increase in the turbulent flux. So W prime, W prime is larger in the polluted case. We're looking at downdrafts. We have stronger downdrafts around the cores of these clouds. And here, when you look at the buoyancy flux, you can see that you have a stronger uh, negative W prime theta V prime, well, because we're in negative W region, we clearly got more negative buoyancy around the edges of this, these clouds. And the, when we track this down, it came, uh, well, the, the reason for it is this evaporative cooling is larger in the polluted clouds. So if you were to take a certain amount of water and divide it up amongst small droplets as opposed to large droplets, the small droplets are going to evaporate more, uh, more efficiently. And that's not a negligible effect. Uh, so there's evidence of this enhanced evaporative cooling and higher turbulence due to aerosol. 
The point here is that we've got the stronger horizontal buoyancy gradient, which feeds into stronger vorticity, which we think is then decreasing the liquid water path. Graham, could I just ask? Yes. Yeah, we, we teased that apart and, and found that we had, we, we did a budget on the evaporation and we showed that we had more efficient evaporation that was essentially driving that. Uh, we went a step further and took three different uh, output from three different models, continental cumulus uh, with one model, trade cumulus with another, and then a 2D model that came from my former advisor at Tel Aviv University. And we divided everything up into buoyant, uh, so we've got Buoyancy, zero down the middle, uh, positive buoyancy, negative buoyancy. Uh, in all cases, the solid lines are the clean simulations. The dashed lines are the polluted. Uh, we're looking at profiles over here. And I could talk to any one of these, but these show up more distinctly for these single uh, cumulus cloud models. You can see that in all cases, we have stronger horizontal buoyancy uh, when we, uh, gradients when we have pollution. Um, this is the vorticity showing up, stronger vorticity, sorry, stronger horizontal buoyancy gradients, stronger vorticity uh, gradients. And when you look at the uh, buoyancy profile, so this is DBDZ, the change in the buoyancy with height, when it's positive, you're in an entraining region. And when it's negative, you're in a detraining region. And uh, it's easier here again because it shows up more clearly. When you have uh, more polluted clouds, you tend to have stronger entrainment, stronger detrainment. So these clouds are spinning faster, if you like. The vortical circulations around the cores of the polluted clouds are faster. And that's all driven by enhanced evaporation. Um, well, this was all premised from numerical modeling. Uh, when we were in Houston, uh, Jen Small, who uh, should be somewhere around here, um, did some analysis with us of polluted clouds and clean clouds to the extent that we could find clean clouds in the Houston area. We did a similar analysis over there. Buoyancy over here, zero down the middle, separated the clean and the polluted. And of course, in some cases, it's not quite as distinct as we'd like, but you can see the separation into stronger horizontal buoyancy gradients in the, in the case of the polluted clouds. Uh, cloud lifetime is something people have talked about a lot. Uh, more aerosol means longer li cloud lifetime. In a stratocumulus cloud, that's a rather odd concept because stratocumulus clouds are constantly recycling. The clouds could sit there for hours, but that's not the same cloud. So cloud lifetime in a stratocumulus cloud is a little bit difficult to, for me at least to, to, to understand. Uh, but when we start tracking individual clouds, so we've taken output from these large eddy simulations, tracked individual clouds, over the course of their lifetime. In this case, we've taken a few hundred clouds, and then we've looked at the statistics of cloud lifetime as a function of aerosol concentration. The two-dimensional models, um, which only these are only single clouds, these really uh, don't have any statistics, and I'm not sure we should be paying too much attention to them. But when we look at hundreds of clouds from large eddy simulation, both BOMEX, trade cumulus, and some continental Brazilian clouds, uh, you can see this very flat response. So increasing aerosol concentration has very little influence on cloud lifetime. Uh, at any given aerosol concentration, there's a whole range 
of, of cloud lifetimes, that's just, just taking the population of small clouds and large clouds. Some will have very, sh the small clouds will have short lifetimes, the large clouds will have longer lifetimes. So there's a great deal of variability at any given aerosol concentration, but almost no response as a function of aerosol concentration. So, uh, you know, going back to some of the basic physics, small drops don't co coalesce very efficiently, and so as you add more aerosol, you're likely to get less rain. On the other hand, in many of these situations, particularly when, when these clouds are not precipitating anyhow, the small droplets evaporate faster than the large ones, and we think that this effect over here, this inverse relationship between the evaporation of the drop and size, uh, is what's driving some of these effects of lower liquid water paths and uh, stronger vortical circulation. So we're getting this excuse me, this, this um, evaporation entrainment feedback that's driving stronger vortical circulations that tends to um, reduce the lifetime of the clouds. So again, I think we need to be careful of these simple constructs that have come up. Uh, if you read the classical uh, second indirect effect, it says more aerosol, more drops, less coalescence, less rain, so far so good. Higher liquid water path, higher cloud fraction, longer lifetime. I think we can put big question marks over those three over there. Some work that we did uh, a couple years ago looking at cloud fraction, but I think it, it would follow too for liquid water path. I think you saw that too in Andy Ackerman's work, is that as you increase the aerosol concentration, under clean conditions, you're likely to increase the cloud fraction and probably the liquid water path. But as you get to more and more polluted conditions, so for non-precipitating clouds, we're expecting uh, the opposite response. So these, these feedbacks complicate the simple monotonic response, and we should stop linking all of these components of the second indirect effect together. Let's look a little at uh, precipitation. Uh, observations show that rain rate scales as h cubed, so h would be the cloud depth, divided by n, or liquid water path to the 1.5 over n, if this were an adiabatic cloud. Uh, you can quibble over the powers of these, uh, and different experiments will show you different numbers. Uh, large eddy simulation gives you similar numbers, but I think there's general agreement that rain production is about one and a half to two and a half times more sensitive to changes in liquid water path than it is to changes in the drop concentration. So again, we have rain being driven more by liquid water path, just like albedo was driven more by liquid water path than it is by N. Now, we shouldn't again stop and say, well, therefore we don't care about what N is, and I think I'll, I'll give you in a few minutes some really good examples of why we should care. Uh, I also wanted to point out that when you get into the accretion mode, so when you're looking at larger cloud droplets or drizzle drops collecting small cloud droplets, there is no dependence on, on N at that point. You really care mostly about the liquid water content in the cloud and the drizzle. So there's only a limited range over which uh, N actually does play a significant role. Uh, these are just some field experiment uh, data from DICOMS, a whole range of flights from the DICOMS field experiment. Uh, and this is a, another compilation from, from Rob Wood. <clears throat> Uh, another useful metric, I think, is what we've termed precipitation susceptibility. So it's just an analog of the albedo susceptibility. And so we ask the question, which clouds are most sensitive to increases in the drop number? 
we define it with a negative sign in front of the, cha the, the logarithmic change in rain as a, uh, versus change in drop number. And we did some very simple parcel modeling to show that we get this non-monotonic response. At low liquid water path, we have low susceptibility. Those clouds aren't precipitating much anyhow. With increasing liquid water path, we have much higher susceptibility, so we're getting significant reductions in the, uh, in the reduction, excuse me, significant reductions in the precipitation. But at some point, above a value, and in this, I don't want to make too much of this value because it depends a lot on how you do your averaging, you start seeing a decrease. And it's this regime over here where I believe we're in the accretion mode, and the accretion mode doesn't care very much about drop concentration anyhow. So certain clouds we are claiming will be more susceptible to increases in the aerosol than others. Uh, this is some work by Armin Sarushian uh, showing data from A-Train, uh, again hinting that there might be a peak in the susceptibility as a function of liquid water path. More work has been done on that, and, and there are papers. Well, let's just look at this. If we wanted to extrapolate and look globally, or at least over the tropical oceans, not globally, but tropical oceans, could we sort of look at regions of the Earth that might be more susceptible to changes in aerosol vis-a-vis -vis precipitation? How did we do this? Well, we used this curve over here, which is the output of a large eddy simulation for trade cumulus. Uh, so this is our susceptibility curve, the blue one, ignore the red one and the black. Uh, we looked at uh, the liquid water path field of these uh, tropical oceans. That t told us where we uh, lie on this curve, this blue curve, which would then tell us what the susceptibility is. And if we know something about the variability in the aerosol, which we do from the aerosol index uh, in the same area, then we can start projecting. These are projections. These are not actual measurements of reductions in precip. We can start projecting where we might uh, reduce the precipitation most. And so we start finding that these hot spots where we have lots of aerosol are regions where we potentially have the most uh, influence on the precipitation. And if we go out to regions over here, even if the liquid water path is fairly high and appropriate, if we don't have the aerosol variability, we shouldn't expect a whole lot of change in the precip there anyhow. These are relative changes in precip, uh, and these are absolute numbers. But the same idea holds. These are just, uh, these are just examples of our thinking, trying to assess uh, precip susceptibility as an analog to the albedo susceptibility and looking for part regions of the earth where we might expect aerosol to have a stronger effect. Here's some work from, again, from Graham's group, Matt Lebsock at L2008, uh, looking at albedo susceptibility. So let's go back to albedo susceptibility. This time, though, let's look at precipitating clouds as opposed to non-precipitating clouds. If we look at the albedo response to changes in aerosol, we find that the non-precipitating clouds have a very flat response. So almost no increase and maybe even a slight decrease in the albedo with increasing aerosol. If we look at the precipitating clouds in red, we now see this distinct increase in the albedo with increasing aerosol. And the reason appears to be driven by the changes in the liquid water path. If we look at the non-precipitating clouds, there's a, there's a weak decrease in liquid water path with increasing aerosol. And when we look at the precipitating clouds, the opposite is true. And that then helps magnify the increase in albedo. So you could see how the susceptibility would be higher in the precipitating clouds. 
So a picture does seem to be emerging. It, it's come from satellite uh, observations and it's come from detailed numerical modeling. I, I think we could put it up as a straw man. It may, may not be right. It may not be general. But the general picture seems to be that liquid water path and cloud fraction seem to increase uh, under low aerosol conditions when you are precipitating and probably decrease uh, in non-precipitating conditions. Um, when you get to some value, and I've purposefully taken off the numbers on that, those axes, we really don't know where that turnover might occur. Uh, Matt went a step further and he looked globally and then he also broke it down into seasons. But now we can start looking at albedo as a function of the aerosol index. So this is the albedo de aerosol. And this now includes all the effects. Now when you see red colors, you have an enhanced albedo as a function of uh, increasing aerosol. Uh, the blue colors are negative, And these white colors are close to white are probably regions where we can't say a whole lot. Uh, I, I'm not sure that at this point we should be making too strong of a statement. But if you look at their paper, you can see the, the breakdown into different seasons. Uh, the, the effect, this, the positive values seem to be strongest in the extratropics and the subtropical stratus. They seem to be strongest in the winter. Uh, they seem to be strongest in the strongly capped marine boundary layer. And of course, these are regions, well, they would be strongest in regions less apt to show decreases in liquid water path. So when you don't have that negative response of the liquid water to increases in aerosol, you're more likely to get this increased albedo with increased N. Okay. Yes. Okay, and this brings me to the last part of the talk. And again, now I'm moving even further away from these uh, indirect effect constructs. And I'm going to try to bring the conversation now to something that I find much more exciting, and that's the idea of self-organization in the aerosol cloud precipitation system. So when you look at a MODIS image like this, a satellite image of stratocumulus clouds, and you look at these dark ocean surfaces with a lace-like structure of open cells, and then the closed cellular structures adjacent to them, it's very hard to look at that and say, well, we can define this by first indirect effect, second indirect effect, etc. There's a richness to this scene that, that is so much more interesting, I think, than the simple constructs. And um, what we've spent some time over the last few years doing is trying to understand how these systems work from the point of view of self-organization. Here's another image, and if you zoom in to part of that image, you can see these open cells. You can see these very beautiful uh, structures that sometimes are very hexagonal and sometimes less so. And I'm sure many of you have looked into your bowl of miso soup and seen similar Rayleigh-Bernard convection closed cells over here and these open cells opening up over here. You've got these warm currents rising, cold surface currents sinking, and these opposite movements can't happen unless you have some kind of self-organization. And these cellular structures are essentially Rayleigh-Bernard uh, cells, or at least an analog to them. So you're getting this spontaneous creation of these coherent patterns from local interactions. And this is a paper by a Japanese group who have written on this in excruciating detail. It's I, I don't remember, but I think there are about there are a large number of pages in this in this paper, and, and this is it's, really, it's it's quite fascinating actually. 
and they, they've been much better about cleaning out, you know, the spring onions and things like that and seaweed than I was. Um, anyhow, this is also reminiscent of work by Baker and Charlson in 1990, looking at the, uh, system equilibria. And the two stable states that Baker and Charlson identified were the non-drizzling regime uh, on this side over here, high CCN concentrations, and then the clean conditions, dCCN dt equals zero being a stable equilibrium. So these two uh, stable equilibria, and then this transition zone in the middle. And this, of course, is also reminiscent of some of Lorentz's work, early work, talking about stable states and how systems would be, uh, stable states would be resilient, of course, and so the system might migrate around a given state, perhaps the state over here or the state over here. And we are now starting to understand how we transition from the non-drizzling regime, uh, the closed cellular state, to the open cellular state. Uh, how we get back to, from the open state to the closed state is another story, and I'll start showing some slides on that. These are some numerical model simulations of open cell states and closed cell states. These are identical simulations except for the fact on, on the right-hand side we put very low aerosol concentrations in, and over here we had higher aerosol concentrations. So this is a drizzling state. This is a non-drizzling state. We're capturing open cell states over here and closed cell states. We know how to transition between these states, and that's really only fairly recent work going back to 2008 uh, and 2009. There aren't that many groups who have, who have looked at this in, in this kind of detail. Here's some uh, animations of the same thing. Two simulations, solid uh, clouds here, close, not completely solid, but these are closed cells over here, open cells over here evolving with time of day. Two satellite images over here from Mike Garay, uh, solid or more solid closed cells and open cells over here. Two different parts of the world. These are just snapshots and illustrations. And all we did over here was we changed the aerosol input to the model. I should say, by the way, that these are rather coarse simulations, 300 by 30 meters. These are really cloud resolving as opposed to large eddy simulations. What's interesting here is that the aerosol seems to be able to select the state of the system. It's not only the aerosol. In other words, you could get drizzle for other reasons than just to change an aerosol. But the aerosol is helping select the state of the system, all else being equal. And the other interesting thing is that if you look at, the state, at the, this open cellular state, you'll find that it doesn't, it's not static. A, the cells are growing, and B, and B, they start to oscillate. And I'll show that in a second. But just talking to these stable states, it brings up this concept of buffering that we wrote about a couple of years ago. And the idea of buffering is that the system, this aerosol cloud system that we're looking at, is one that tends to want to hover in a certain stable state. In other words, if we kick it hard with a perturbation, perhaps an aerosol perturbation, that doesn't mean we're going to see a strong effect. So different paths to a specific end in the system buffer the system against disruptions to any particular path. So all this, the complexity of interactions within the system are essentially buffering the system against a strong perturbation. So you might see these two states, and I know that Lorentz, when he talked about these states, was thinking about these as you know, rapid transitions between A and B, and that's really not my point. I'm not equating this with, with the, the, you know, the sensitivity to initial conditions. This is just more about exploring whether states are stable or not, how stable they are, how rapidly we can move from one state to another. Uh, and if you look into self-organizing self systems, 
small perturbations can actually strengthen the resilience of the state because you're allowing that system to explore more of its phase space in the vicinity of the attractor. I'm talking fairly broadly here, but I'll give you some examples of how this all plays out. So here are three simulations uh, uh, from a paper a couple of years ago. Clean over here, moderately polluted and polluted over here. Here are your open cells in the clean case and also in the moderately polluted case. Uh, what are we looking at? We're looking at near surface vertical velocity. So where you see red, you're seeing the open cells updraft. So this is near the surface. We're seeing strong updrafts in the open cell walls. These would show up as bright white clouds on a satellite image. The blue regions tend to be the weaker, more broad downdrafts. So this would be a downdraft region over here. I'm also showing some black contours. I hope you can see those. Here are some black contours superimposed on this knot of red uh, convergence. You can see those black contours over here too. So let's focus here for a second. You can see how precipitation is associated with the downdrafts, no surprise. And you can see a cell opening up over here around that precipitation. Here is a case where precipitation is forming. So this would be precipitation forming. This would be precipitation uh, uh, decaying. And how do I know that? Well, um, oh, okay, well, let's just look one second. Okay, the, I wanted to point out again this uh, knot of convergence zones. Perhaps I'll flip back there for a second. But this here is a region where you have the strongest convergence because three of these lines of convergence meet. That's where we expect the precip to start forming. And if you look closely at some satellite imagery, this is from Germany 5, you can actually see these hexagonal shapes in trade cumulus, and you can see that the strongest convection occurs where you have these adjacent cells meeting. So I, don't th I think the models are showing us what, what they, 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 I think they're uh, realistic. Okay, how do I know that we were looking at decaying versus forming precip? Here is an animation of that same scene. So follow number one from the cell that initiated, in well, let's start again in a second. Here is a strong convergence. A cell starts to open up where the precip was. And so there you are. There's your, so you have this Y-shaped convergence zone. There's a region favored for convection. That's where the precip is initiated. That's where you get downdrafts and opening up of the cell. And then you start getting surface divergence. And these cells are then jostling around in the space because they're all influencing one another. They're all in the shared physical environment. And so they're influencing how the rearrangements of these cells will occur. Um, if you look at this in a, in a simple time series, slightly different color scheme from one, uh, this is 6.30, 7.30, so an hour apart. Here is the strong convergence. Here is the cell opening up. Here is the large cell. So if you like, here is your strong convergence zone driven by the divergence associated with neighboring cells. And if you look at the end over here at 7.30, now we've got a precipitating cell driving downdrafts, divergence, which is then feeding into neighboring cells. And all of this looks a little complex. So what kind of emergent behavior are we seeing? Is there any underlying simplicity? Well, in fact, if you look at the rain rate as a function of time, these happen to be three different numerical simulations. And you see some os oscillations in the rain rate. And yes, the magnitude changes, but there's a fairly characteristic frequency associated with these um, precipitating uh, uh, cloud systems. This is the 
domain and time, uh, domain average as a function of time. Here we've taken the precip that is, that is uh, just for a small part of the domain over time, and you can see those oscillations showing up quite clearly for the DICOMS case. Here is the precip as a function of distance, and here we've just taken a short window of time. And again, you can see some regularity in that. So if you build a Hoffmuller diagram, which is essentially taking the horizontal structure and then looking at that as a function of time, and now we're contouring the rain rate. So the colored contours would be rain. Uh, there are some black uh, contours over here showing updraft, but you could just focus on the colored contours for rain. And if you look at that structure, you can immediately see the some kind of gridding. So here you are, I've put a, a sort of a ruler on, if you like, showing the, the, the grid of these at a certain time. And if you look a little bit, little bit later, it's shifted to the side and then it shifts back again. And if you then start looking at this in, uh, hopefully I can, there we go. If we now look at the system, so this is the liquid water path of this entire system as a function of time. Okay, so this is just an animation of what the liquid water path is doing. And in fact, the liquid water path is close, closely related to the rain rate. The thing that strikes you is that rain is not occurring randomly throughout this domain. There's a coupling going on over here. There's a, uh, you've got coupled oscillators which are in, somewhat in sync, not perfectly in sync, obviously. That's why you get that characteristic oscillation in the precipitation in those previous plots. So. It's true that you know, there's, there's, there's not complete communication between these oscillators, but they are coupled to some extent. And so this whole system is pulsating at a certain rate. Uh, it's easier for me to go back and look at it over here. So we're talking here about um, an hour, roughly. And that's related to depth of boundary layer, size of cells, and things like that. OK. so. In the last minutes, I want to just look at the role of aerosol. This is really about aerosol cloud interactions and uh, analogs for geoengineering. Uh, an example that I wanted to bring up here is the stability of these open cell states. What is the role of the aerosol? Well, we did some simulations, and here is a time series um, over the course of uh, uh, more than 24 hours. Here is the liquid water path, and when we didn't have an aerosol source, we found at some point that these clouds were collapsing. These are CCN limited regions where we just didn't have enough aerosol in order to uh, generate clouds. So there's a collapse of a boundary layer. When we added natural aerosol sources through nucleation and through surface wind-driven production, we were able to maintain clouds. So I want to step back one second and, uh, and, and maybe retract a little bit. What I'm saying is let's not say that the aerosol is not important. Without the aerosol in super clean conditions, it's quite hard to maintain boundary layer clouds. So there is definitely a role for the aerosol. Uh, you could see this runaway uh, section over here as, as being the transition from the closed state to the open state if you want to go back to uh, the, the Baker and Charlson figure. Uh, nucleation of new particles occurs. Here's some evidence of it from Tomlinson et al. And it tends to occur in these open cells. So when you're in an open cell region, you have very low aerosol surface area. That's where you are most likely to have aerosol nucleation if you have sufficient sulfuric acid, uh, cool conditions and humidity and all the other ingredients that go in. 
giant nuclei. I think this is something we really should uh, spend a minute on. Uh, we did some simulations years ago where we looked at large, so these are stratocumulus clouds in a large eddy simulation model. Liquid water path as a function of time, a base case simulation with no giant nuclei over here, and then adding giant CCN at one per liter or 10 per liter, and you can see how very small concentration, so one in 10 to the five roughly, of uh, particles being a giant nucleus is able to significantly reduce the liquid water path. And if you looked at the precip, you can see significant in increases in the precipitation due to these uh, small changes in the concentration of large particles. Uh, what does that mean in terms of the albedo? Uh, here is the cloud albedo. So here's albedo as a function of time. If we had no giant nuclei, we had a fairly constant albedo in this particular case. But as soon as we added the giant nuclei, that loss of liquid water path plus the larger drops is generating clouds that have much lower albedo. So when we get into the discussions on geoengineering, I think we do have to remember that the size of the particles is going to be important. And if we start spewing large particles in, we may have the opposite effect from what we would like. This, was, this is getting to the end. This is the uh, ship track. I said I'd give one example of a ship track from some work we did a couple of years ago. Um, and we'll talk more about this on Wednesday. Here is a ship track. This is synthetic cloud albedo from a model. Uh, we're essentially taking a ship through this domain. This is the albedo. This is the number of drops and the drizzle. So the drizzle is, are these black contours around the uh, ship track. And you can see that within the ship track, at least at three hours, we have no drizzle. So we've suppressed the drizzle within the ship track. But when you start looking in the tail of the ship track, we actually see we do have drizzle, which is interesting. The other thing is if we look at six hours, we find that we've generated something quite interesting. Here's, here's your ship track. You can see it fairly well. But you also see this clearing on either side of the ship track. And if you look within the ship track, you can see we start having, we, we, we've not, we now got drizzle. So ship tracks, which were supposedly not, well, we thought they weren't going to be drizzling, now seem to have some mechanism which is enhancing the drizzle within the track. And the reason is, and I, I can't go into too much detail, that we get mesoscale circulations transverse to the tracks. So if you were to take a cross-section transverse to the track, what you find is, and I think we'll, we'll show it's a little bit easier, well, let me show you a, a, an example of these ship track shadows. And here is a strong ship track. You, didn't, you can't see it very clearly when you look at the big picture. When you zoom in, you can see these shadows in this image over here. And here's another example from an Apollo Soyuz mission in 75, where you know, this is a very low level uh, uh, orbit. You can see these shadow effects on either side of these ship tracks very clearly. And what's happening is here's this transverse circulation, uh, this circulation transverse to the track that I was getting at. Here is your ship track. On either side, you've got precipitation. So you've got downdrafts. Downdrafts on either side. There's a, there's a divergence at the surface associated with this precip. It's driving a convergence into the ship track. It's feeding more water vapor into the ship track, thickening the cloud, and then uh, creating precip at some point. This is, I'm not going to generalize here, uh, but I think we need to start considering the fact that Mesoscale circulations associated with aerosol perturbations could be a very interesting part of the problem. We shouldn't just be thinking about brightening in a horizontally homogeneous cloud field. 
Uh, another, speaking again to geoengineering experiments, we did some numerical simulations where we had, uh, here is our clean simulation where we went from a 100% cloud fraction down to 40% open cellular structure. And at this point, we said, let's throw a huge concentration of aerosol particles into the domain, 300 particles per cc. Let's see what happens to the cloud fraction. So this would be a, a geoengineering experiment where we just really, this is unrealistic. We dump a huge amount of particles into the domain. We did get an increase in the cloud fraction. We did get an increase in the albedo. But when we looked at the structure of these clouds, we found that we were actually still in, a close, in an open cellular state. We had filled these open cells in with a veil of thin clouds, but we had not actually converted these into closed cells. Now, I say that th th this is based on a couple of simulations that we did. And then I looked at some satellite imagery that uh, gave me pause, because here you can see a ship track going into an open cellular region. And this isn't all that clear, but it really does look as if you may have converted those open cells into closed cells. So I think this is still something we have a lot more to look, uh, there's a lot more work to look at, uh, to do, and to, to understand whether we really can easily go from an open cellular state back to a closed cellular state, which is perhaps what a geoengineering experiment might want to do. Graham, could I just interject to say, if Andy Rosenfeld was with us here, he would be saying that you can find this all the time where you can, one, one will see evidence for Right, and my retort would be that uh, what about the times we don't see things? We always tend to look at the times we do see things and, and not the times we don't. So that's, uh, as, as was said, I think, by Francis Bacon, that's the root of all superstition, the fact that we look for patterns in things that we see, not the things we don't see. Uh, I'll, I'll wrap up then. Um, I'm gonna, these are just main themes and conclusions and maybe some food for thought and for discussion. I would say that aerosol cloud interactions are seldom simple and that even ship tracks are complex. Uh, Precip suppression might be the simplest aspect, when we, but when we start getting these mesoscale circulations, all sorts of other things might happen. Uh, aerosol cloud precip system is often self-organizing. Uh, self-organizing and buffered are not necessarily the same. There's some subtleties there, but if we just speak to the self-organizing aspects, the fact that we do have this bifurcation between Closed cellular states that are highly reflective and open cellular states that are not. It would seem fruitful to identify times when these systems are not robust, when they're not buffered and, and hovering around their stable state. Uh, that would seem to be the, uh, I think there would be opportunity to try to understand what makes them move between these different states. Um, I would say that aerosol influences may trigger changes in the self-organization that are much more complex and interesting than the original microphysical perturbation. So there is a role for the aerosol that may be causing these perturbations, shifting systems from one state to another. But understanding, understanding these as systems, as opposed to thinking of these as boxes and brightening or suppression of precip, was, is a much more fruitful approach, in my opinion. Uh, geoengineering ship track experiments, the one I showed here and we'll show more on Wednesday, may yield unintended consequences, and I'm referring there to these ship track shadows that appear because of mesoscale circulations. And I'll stop there. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Caltech. Visit us at caltech.edu.